Hello, everybody, and welcome to the TeacherCast podcast. My name is Jeff Bradbury. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for making TeacherCast your home for professional development. There's, of course, several great ways that you can reach out and be a part of our show each and every week. We love it when you find us on Twitter at TeacherCast. Leave us a voicemail over at TeacherCast.net slash voicemail. And, of course, we love it when you email us over at feedback at TeacherCast.net. And all of our archives are going to be found over at TeacherCast.net slash audio and TeacherCast.net cast.net slash video and welcome to our show today we have quite a treat for you we have an amazing guest on the show today see recently we've been doing some series of shows with microsoft education and on september 24th we're going to be actually out in seattle doing some behind the scenes video for something called Hack the Classroom, a two-hour live event that you can register for by going to teachercast.net slash hack the classroom. And it is a two-hour live event featuring amazing keynotes, great interviews, and a live makerspace we're going to be covering. I'm going to be out there in Seattle doing all of this work with the amazing people that are out there. I hope you have a chance to join us by checking it out. Of course, you can go over to teachercast.net slash hack the classroom for much more information about that. My guest today is one of the keynote speakers for that event. He has an amazing resume that we're going to dive into today. He was dubbed Mr. Creativity and a Serial Innovator by The Economist. He's also was a Harvard Business School professor best-selling author, advisor to governments such as Finland and Abu Dhabi. He's worked with several top advisors, several great leaders, and my favorite, he was on the Colbert Report. I want to bring on today Mr. John Keo. John, how are you today? Welcome to TeacherCast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, we're going to talk all about Hack the Classroom and, of course, the message of innovation and innovating students and how we can get students to be innovative in the classroom and beyond. But I want to start off today by asking a really, really important question of you. When did you learn the piano? So I started uh, playing the piano when I was about five years old Mm. and uh, did it in the very traditional way of Thompson method books and classical music. Obviously, that path kind of mutated over time. I, I, I love the old red, red, red cover Thompson, the red and blue book Thompsons. Indeed. Absolutely. I, I started with those myself. And, and you've become quite a jazz pianist, haven't you? Well, I enjoy playing jazz piano. I, I think I need to be somewhat uh, humble about it. But, you know, the contrast between classical music and jazz is so provocative in terms of understanding the deep skills of innovation and creativity. Uh, so I've, I've had a good excuse to continue my exploration of uh, music in my uh, later years, shall we say. Now, now, talk to us a little bit about that, because that's, that's kind of where I want to start things off here. We have traditional music, which is written down, and it is a chord progression. But then we also have jazz, which is improvised. Is there a, a similarity between, you know, progression versus improvise and the same thing as book smart and creativity innovation when it comes to the academic world? Well, both uh, kinds of music are, uh, are music, except one kind is written down and uh, uh, it's practiced and it's performed, whereas the other kind of music is created in the moment in a way that has to sound good. Uh, in order to pass an aesthetic test. And, you know, it would 
It'd be very reassuring if we were in a world where uh, we could be given the notes and the instructions about how to play them exactly, then we could just kind of uh, produce a, a high quality performance. But in the kind of 21st century turmoil ridden world that we live in, we have to kind of learn how to make it up as we go along. We have to learn how to improvise. We have to learn how to create valuable things on the fly. And these are some of uh, the important elements of 21st century skills that are very near and dear to my heart. It seems like as we go through the 21st century, and clearly we're 16 years into this, innovation is more and more becoming something that we should be teaching at a younger and younger age. Do, do you feel that way? And if so, why are we looking to teach kindergartners the skill of innovation? Well, uh, I've said elsewhere that we are uh, in the age of innovation, by which I mean that not just companies or Silicon Valley startups, but also countries are increasingly recognizing the importance of building innovation capability, uh, of uh, investing in the ability of uh, their people to create new valuable solutions to whether they're business problems or social problems. Uh, China is an example of a country which has invested something on the order of a half a trillion dollars in what they call their national uh, innovation agenda. And many other countries, uh, you mentioned Finland earlier and Singapore, uh, are uh, vying to be uh, at the top of the heap in the innovation sweepstakes. So this whole idea that um, we need as young people to be able to create our own jobs because the jobs aren't going to be handed to us like a piece of sheet music. We need to have the flexibility to uh, define our pathway through an increasingly turbulent world. Um, we have to uh, use our innate creativity and amplify it by the acquisition of skills in areas like uh, uh, design and narrative and collaboration and so on, to be able to uh, amplify our innate creativity to address the so-called wicked problems that uh, affect our, our, our world these days. So innovation to me is one of the most important uh, education agenda items once we kind of free it from our kind of cliches and prejudices about what it is and instead focus on it as the ability to generate new ideas, to be able to develop them, and then to be able to realize value from them, whether it be in terms of a business value or, more importantly, I think, a social value. When it comes to innovation, is it as much as being a creative entrepreneur or solopreneur, or is it teaching leadership skills? I know that you've got a background in starting businesses. Is it something that we should be teaching kids how to be leaders and lead groups of five, ten, hundreds, or should we be teaching them as the solo piano player, just go out on your own and wherever the road leads you, that's where you might fall? Well, it's interesting that you framed it that way because I, I see it as being a blend. In some respects, um, an innovator, a creator, an entrepreneur, and I think those are three different flavors of a, um, a pathway in life, um, needs to be able to define their own path, needs to be confident, needs to uh, have a personal uh, uh, vision of possibility that they want to actualize. But these days, uh, the notion of the uh, isolated uh, genius in a room cooking something up uh, no longer fits with the facts. And so the uh, uh, ability to collaborate with others, to build organizations, to lead teams in service of realizing that vision uh, becomes extremely important. So you you may need to have a singular perspective, but you also need to be able to uh, work well with others. 
what are some of the ways that we as educators can pick up those skills? I mean, most of the time right now you're seeing an educator in a boxed classroom being told what to do, and sometimes they don't have the opportunity to be innovative themselves, let alone teach others to be innovative. Well, I think part of the uh, issue is that up until now, uh, there has been in the way of uh, teaching material that uh, would enable uh, a teacher in the classroom to impart some of the uh, innovation capacities that uh, we've just mentioned as being so important. I mean, I've, I've dedicated the last life to harvesting what I know about innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, uh, the digital domain, into and to deconstruct innovation in, in a sense into teachable, learnable elements deployed in schools, middle, high school, and undergraduate university type educational environments by teachers. And so we're just at the threshold now where high quality integrated practice-based learning materials are becoming available uh, to teachers. And by the way, I don't see innovation as being a separate course uh, over to the side when a curriculum has room. I see the kind of skills that innovation is about uh, as being relevant range of education objectives. I mean, there's uh, skills, narrative and telling and presentation skills and Socratic dialogue skills that are useful across the board and that we at Edgemakers try to impart as very objective learning experience. So, so John, a few years ago, you formed a company called Edgemakers. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, this came from my personal zeal to create a high-quality learning experience for uh, innovation, broadly defined, um, and to make it available to lots and lots of young people through the medium of schools and also through uh, self-directed learning uh, offerings as well. Part of it is, you know, I've been working in the innovation field, broadly defined, for some 30 years, and I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, and I've seen how... um, it needs to be rescued from simply being a bumper sticker or cool stuff or wacky ideas, but actually needs to be seen as a set of disciplines, seeing ideas, developing ideas, and harvesting the value from ideas. So in that short sentence, I've encompassed a number of different disciplines, ranging from uh, creativity and ideation to design, narrative development, the management of change, collaboration, digital skills, and then finally entrepreneurial skills, which are about uh, realizing the value from ideas in some practical form, whether it be a business form or a a social form. So the other thing is, um, for me, innovation is a very practical practice-based discipline. You know, it's kind of like um, uh, you can't teach it just by giving lectures and reading books. You actually have to do it. Um, You know, the metaphor that I like to use is... uh, uh, you, you know, you don't learn a skill like being a, a, a Michelin star chef by reading a textbook. You have to get your hands dirty in the kitchen. Uh, you don't look at PowerPoint slides to acquire those finger skills. You have to get practice. So um, Edgemakers is actually an effort. We're now in four countries, the U.S., uh, Colombia, Brazil, and uh, India, and uh, considering expanding into other areas as well, which is about bringing, you know, my 30 years uh, plus minus of innovation uh, teaching, innovation uh, advisory, and innovation facilitation into a very crystalline form so it can be made available to young people uh, uh, everywhere. 
Now you and I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Of the best way to learn these skills is by doing it. How do you suggest the the average high school kid go about getting some of these skills? Is it about finding an internship or just starting their own business, physical, online, whatever? How do high school students get the advantages that they need these days? Well, I, I, we actually use the classroom as the crucible for the practical uh, practice based learning. So, for example. Uh, sustainability, which is, in a sense, a, the generational challenge of our age, um, uh, and which we all should be, you know, concerned about in one way or another, becomes the uh, the raw material for uh, practicing all of the different skills I mentioned. So uh, the curriculum that we've developed uh, contains a number of uh, different streams of practical application. So analyzing the flow of waste within your personal life, your classroom, your home, your community, becomes an exercise in ethnography, in, uh, in reimagining new solutions, in applying design disciplines to uh, uh, modifying the way that uh, waste, in a sense, becomes less wasteful. So, you know, there are opportunities to do innovation projects right uh, 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 at your fingertips. And we exploit many, many, any opportunities to actually have the collaborative, the ideation, the design, the entrepreneurial processes unfold within a classroom. So in that respect, are we looking at project-based learning or problem-based learning, or is this something completely different than those two things? Well, it's project-based learning as applied to the learning framework that we've created. So Edgemakers right now uh, is a series of courses and also a large uh, body of learning assets that can be deployed quite uh, flexibly. And the, the learning opportunities in the sense of the project-based learning uh, are, are distributed throughout the, uh, the curriculum, at least in the canonical form that uh, we've developed it thus far. So uh, practice and theory uh, and learning at a variety of levels uh, informs our style of uh, this pedagogical development. Talking today to Mr. John Kao, uh, a renowned author, strategist, entrepreneur, jazz piano player. And I want to get back to this real quick because uh, my background is in music. My background is as a music teacher. What do you see or, or what? I want to see the right question here, but talk to me about the importance of music education when it comes to being a creative student and I would even say a creative human. So music education to me is a very interesting subset of the whole challenge of reimagining education because, you know, obviously from a policy perspective, uh, music education is lumped in with the arts and it's considered to be um, quite dispensable when it comes to allocating scarce budget. At the same time, um, the advances in neuroscience that are occurring that enable dynamic brain imaging show quite conclusively that learning music in certain kinds of ways actually is a very good proxy for learning how to be creative and that there are certain centers of the brain that light up when improvisation occurs, that also different parts of the brain light up when inhibition of creative flow occurs. And so we're not just talking about um, something that's uh, artsy and elective. We're talking about... um, uh, a way of cultivating brain development, especially in earlier uh, childhood, which is very significant. Um, the National Association of Music Manufacturers, NAM, which runs the biggest music trade show, had a, uh, had a program some years ago that says it all. The name of the program was Music Makes You Smart. 
And, um, you know, other countries like, uh, you know, I come back to China as an example, uh, are investing in music education explicitly becoming intelligence and brain function. So I think we're missing out a lot by all of the cuts in music education. And the other thing is, I think there's innovation that can be applied to music education to make it even more kind of generically relevant. You know, a lot of music education these days is still about, you know, finding the uh, the golden student that's going to be able to play Beethoven uh, piano sonatas, as opposed to understanding that music is a literacy, just like using words or using colors or shapes that all young people should learn at some point in their life. Do you have a favorite artist that you like to perform on the piano? Well, I mean, I, I like to perform the great American songbook because you know the, the 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 folks in the 30s and 40s uh, are you know should have, should be awarded Nobel the Nobel Prize for music in a way <laughs> for having created uh, musical tunes that have stood the test of time and have uh, accommodated the improvisational genius of so many generations of jazz uh, musicians. So you know obviously the George Gershwins and the Cole Porters are in there, the uh, the Julie Steins, the uh, Sammy Kahn's you know, all of the the legendary uh, composers. And then it's up to us in 2016 to add something new to that music uh, to extend the tradition further. With the idea that, as you said, we're just taking what happened in the 30s, the, the Cole Porters, the Gershwins, guys that we all grew up with that were not only composers, they were Broadway stars, they were, they were improvisers, they did everything in all these different types of medium transpose that now to 2016 we've got people doing programming coding uh html web design you name it is this the same kind of boom that we saw back in the early days of broadway where so much is happening and you can really be what you want to be well well it's an interesting observation you know creativity tends to clump in different historical eras and in different periods you know social media kind of got its start in the san francisco bay area um, the Great American Songbook really has its roots on Tin Pan Alley yep. uh, in New York City, which was literally where, until it became a musical hotspot, people would bang tin pans together uh, to advertise the sale of certain kinds of products. So yep. um, there, there are some interesting of apps being the songs of the 21st uh, century uh, and having that kind of popularity curve with some of them enduring and others coming and going. And the neat thing about those songs of the 20s and 30s, and I, I saw you mention this on one of your, your YouTube videos, you're sitting here improvising on the piano. You could go anywhere that you want. You're making up the melody, whatever's in your head, but you're still locked on to what we refer to as 12-bar blues. There's still some kind of a spine or a backbone that goes to that. And I think the same thing is happening these days with creativity. You can be an app developer or a web designer, but we're still on that path of, we do have rules that we want to keep into. How do you share that with students where you say you could do anything that you want, just kind of stay within these boxes and within these rules? Well, I think that uh, creativity uh, to be worthwhile always has to be a balancing act between structure and freedom, uh, traditions and what is novel. Um, and it's the 10 are apparently paradoxical opposites that actually leads to uh, the good stuff. So, um, jazz musicians are fond of saying you have to learn the rules and then and you can throw the rules away. And there's a lot of truth to that because 
you know, the popular idea of jazz might be that people are sitting down at the piano and playing whatever they feel like playing, but nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the jazz musician has to master their instrument, has to understand harmony and uh, the theory of uh, uh, jazz music, which is extremely complex uh, or can be extremely complex. And uh, at the same time, at the moment of performance has to forget all of that because um, it's uh, the quality of the performance is about tapping into something very essential in terms of one's inner creativity and artistry. So um, I'm very uh, uh, much in favor of uh, discipline and rules when it comes to uh, uh, all kinds of creative work. You know, every kind of creative work ha uh, involves a medium and a medium has friction. You know, if you're a sculptor, it's pieces of marble. If you're a painter, it's canvas and, and pigments. Uh, if, it, if it's music, it's uh, musical notes, which are basically sound frequencies that um, are produced by uh, a musical instrument. So um, uh, I think it's a very important message uh, for young people, first of all, that they're all creative. And secondly, that they all have uh, the opportunity to express their creativity, but that it is a, a blend of discipline as well as inspiration. Should we be encouraging students to stay within the box or should we be encouraging students just to break free or should we say learn inside the box, then go out and do what you want? Well, I, I, I think it kind of depends. I mean, I, I would say uh, it's important for students to understand the dimensions of the box, the, the materials uh, that the box is made out of, uh, you know, what happens if you stub your toe on the box and the mm -hmm. consequences of it. But ultimately, you know, as teachers, we want our students to fly. We want them to um, go where no one has gone before. We want them to explore. We, we want their innate creativity, which they've had since childhood, to not be extinguished by having to obey some industrial model of what the learning process is supposed to be about. Uh, but at the same time, we want to respect the fact that there are boxes. You know, there is math. Two plus two equals four. There's physics. There's, you know, there are disciplines that uh, are, are very valuable to learn. What did you learn from Frank Zappa? So with all of that being said, John, tell us a little bit about your time with Frank Zappa. What did he tell you and what kind of things did you learn after spending time with him? Well, it was a, an amazing experience. You know, I uh, got to essentially be his apprentice for the sum, uh, most of the summer. Uh, so everything that he did during that period I did, whether it was going to the studio or uh, going on the road and performing or uh, simply watching him assemble uh, uh, musical creations in his basement studio. Um, so I learned a lot. I mean, he was one of the very first multiple media artists who saw what he produced as, you know, being... Uh, a piece of music that was also a film and also uh, a stage show and many different um, uh, embodiments, which in of itself was quite interesting. Uh, but I think uh, a couple of things to mention. One is I will always remember how supportive he was of the artist. I mean, he was um, not your stereotypic, you know, crazy uh, erratic person. He was very professional, and uh, he was very kind to me, which, you know, in some respects, he had no reason to be. Um, and very nurturing of young thing is that uh, he was very uh, uh, courageous about combining different elements together to form uh, new combinations. You know, that he, he once said to me, anything sounds good as long as it's superimposed on top of a, a perfer backbeat.
Uh, and there's some truth to that. And again, you've got that notion of the rules and the rhythm supporting the, the inspiration and the creativity on top of it. You know, if you look at that period of time when you were working with Frank and it was 1969, this was after Woodstock, this was before the 70s, all of this musical innovation was happening both in the studio, this is again post-Beatles, but also post the time when uh, Bob Dylan plugged in and, and all that mess was going on. Is there any similarity between that era of of abundance of sound and where we are today with an abundance of information, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Pokemon Go, everything is hitting the students all at the same time. And they're still trying to figure out how to rise above and be that next Frank Zappa or, you know, you name the star that came out of the 70s that made themselves known within all of that sound process that was going on. Well, I think those were simpler days and the media that conveyed the creativity were much more uh, defined. I think what's noteworthy about today is, as you put it, it's an, it's an avalanche of information. Um, and so the consumption of media uh, works differently. You know, there's a lot more scanning and a lot more curating on the fly and picking and choosing and uh, having flows of information, rivers of information go by where you've just kind of pick an element or two out, you know, on your Twitter feed or on your Instagram feed, because um, you can't absorb it all. Um, I think also there's much more of the uh, onus on the end user to link together uh, and connect the dots in a sense of all of the different uh, elements and all of the different media types. Uh, and in the old days, things were a lot more pure. So I think the, the, the uh, density of information uh, requires a number of different kinds of skills, but it also raises issues about, you know, how young people validate uh, 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 the information they get through digital media. I mean, how do they know whether something is true or false? Um, how do they know how to certify or self-certify that something is believable? And, you know, in the present era, um, that is a key uh, skill of being uh, a functional citizen in uh, civil society. What kinds of things are you currently working on when it's, you know, you and a leader of a country and you're trying to either advise them on innovation, creativity, or assist them in moving a, a country, a continent into innovation. What are those meetings like? What are those conversations like? Are people scared of innovation? Are they embracing it but not knowing how? What kinds of things do you advise during those moments? I think, well, it's all different. I mean, people come to those conversations, leaders come to those conversations with different personal styles, different understandings, uh, different levels of sophistication, uh, different agendas. Uh, so my job is to be a good diagnostician and understand both at an individual level and also in terms of the constituencies they represent, what's really on their mind, and then to relate it to my, at this point, fairly fleshed out uh, mental model of how all the different pieces, uh, well, what all the different pieces are to begin with, but then how they all fit together. And uh, it's like being a doctor. You know, a patient comes in and they have symptoms and they present in a certain way, and then you uh, have to figure out uh, what's going on, and you create a hypothesis, which we would call a diagnosis, and is not entirely accurate uh, right off the bat. And then you um, uh, you iterate, and you 
try something and hopefully it works. You make a prescription and, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully you have a healthier and happier uh, patient, customer. You know, I, I, I love the idea of, of acting in that doctor role where you're listening to what's going on and then trying to make adjustments. We recently had something being introduced into our society, mentioned it a little bit of time ago, called Pokemon Go. This is a combination of, I think I'm saying this right, augmented reality and virtual reality. Maybe you can help us define those too, but are these things... Sh- should we be using these things in the classroom? Should we be bringing in this this whole extra world or all these extra gadgets into our educational system? And if so, why or why not? Well, I'm not necessarily in favor of bringing in shiny new gadgets and technology just because they're new. I think you always have to think about what's the learning experience. Um, I do think that virtual reality, which is the complete uh, substitution of your uh, 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 reality around you for a synthesized reality and augmented reality, which is the superimposition of uh, a, a, um, a virtual layer on a perceived real uh, environment around you are going to role in education. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm involved in a pretty significant set of experiments right now around using VR as a way, as a medium for creating a, experiences that are about developing uh, intelligence and judgment and um, uh, a number of the different character strengths that uh, we would agree are uh, within the 21st century skills spectrum. But I think it's very early days. So if I were were a teacher, I would both be interested, but I remain agnostic until the technology has proven itself out. At the same time, um, I would also say that, uh, you know, young people are... Um, exposed to a deeply rich environment uh, schools can hope to replicate. And so maintaining uh, student engagement, uh, I think, is very much about uh, offering certain kinds of uh, digital experiences that are going to maintain the level of or stimulate the level of engagement that in turn will uh, activate the, uh, the in-class learning experience. How far down the road do you think we are before AR, VR is part of the norm? I mean, I see it a lot right now, but as you said, we're still a ways from it. Is this five years, 15 years? Oh, I I think it's not the next few years for sure. I think we're still in a very early experimentation stage. And, uh, you know, there's there are questions about where the money comes and, you know, what kind of a hardware setup is required to have these experiences. I mean, what I've been doing is mostly focusing on what the learning experience is and what the pedagogical layer is that will enable these experiences to be real in a school. And I think uh, all of those kind of standards have yet to be worked out and ratified um, uh, uh, so that a, it becomes, as you say, the norm. So I think this is it's really um, sort of a paradigm shift. I don't see it as being the next, but I don't see it being, uh, you know, 15 years either. I mean, I think there are a lot of schools that already have an appetite uh, for adopting some of this technology. Uh, I, things are quite advanced in this area in the UK uh, and other countries. So uh, it's just a matter of time. It's an inevitability, in my opinion. 
I, I couldn't agree more. I know working in a K-12 situation right now, there are kids all over the place that are learning about this, using this. I see teachers trying to put it in their classrooms. I mean, uh, ARVR kind of does come from the, the QR code family. I've, I see QR codes popping all up where we're trying to find extra ways to stimulate us, to pop something up, to, to give us an extra dimension to our classrooms here. John, talk to us a little bit about the Hack the Classroom event next week. What can we be excited about for it? And what are you going to be sharing with us at that event? Well, I think uh, it's a meeting of the minds. I think um, uh, the organizers have put together a really terrific uh, roster of people. I think that uh, the event is very well uh, conceived and curated. And so it should be a window on a number of different um, of uh, uh, forward-thinking areas about where education is going. Uh, What I'm going to be doing is talking a fair amount about my perception of what kind of innovation is in in education as an institution. So uh, innovating education and then educating for innovation, which obviously is a big theme of my own work. But all of that would be about looking at the future of education, where I think it's going, where I think it needs to go, uh, and what some of those driving forces uh, will be. You know, there will be a, a wide range of uh, voices. So I, I, it should be a pretty terrific event. Uh, you know, I, I credit, uh, my, you know, the more I've looked into this too, I mean, Microsoft is very committed to uh, making, uh, you know, a bridge between advanced technology and concepts around the use of the So I'm personally interested to see how that, looks in a actually in an event setting and of course if you're out there interested in learning more about hack the classroom you can go to teachercast.net slash hack the classroom it's going to be happening live on september 24th saturday morning eight o'clock a.m to 10 o'clock p.m pacific time uh, a fantastic lineup of speakers and, and and events going on and teacher cast himself jeff bradbury i'm, I'm going to be out there uh, doing all the behind-the-scenes stuff. So we'll be doing Facebook Live and tweets and, and Snapchatting, and we're going to be doing all the social media out there. We are looking forward to that. John, I want to say thank you so much for your time for, for coming on today. But before I let you go, I do have one very, very difficult question for you, if you don't mind taking one more from us here. John, if you could do a piano duet with anybody, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Um, there's so many choices. I think, uh, I would, I would, uh, someone like Eric Satie, who Mm. in the simplicity of his music, uh, made some of the most profound statements that musicians have ever made. And then I would try to, uh, emulate that level of simplicity. You know, it's kind of the old statement of simplicity is the ultimate form of elegance. So, um, I've always been fascinated by his music because he could cram so much meaning into so few notes. I mean, he's not a jazz musician, but was um, was it Sati was the one that made the part of the question? That's okay. Sati was the one that did the the gymnopedes. Gymnop. I can never say that word right. Right. Gymnopedie and uh, uh, you know, I mean, his his music is like thoughts unfolding. 
Very, very cool. John, thank you so much for your time. I'm really looking forward to seeing you next week. And, and, and you know, again, if you're out there, check out Hack the Classroom over at teachercast.net slash hack the classroom. You can find more information about John by going to johnko.com. That's J-O-H-N-K-A-O.com. And uh, one last time, John, tell us a little bit about what we can learn or how we can um, reach out to you at Edgemakers. Oh, yeah. So Edgemakers has a URL as well, and it's www.edgemakers.com. So that's edgemakers, M-A-K-E-R-S, all one word, dot com. And uh, there's plenty of information on there. There's downloadable content. There's uh, samples. There's video demonstrations. There's blog posts from our global community of young people. And there's ample opportunity uh, uh, information as to how to contact us. So thank you for reminding me to mention that because uh, we, we welcome uh, interest from uh, all of our colleagues uh, in terms of what we're doing and, and your input. Well, my friends, that wraps up this episode of the TeacherCast podcast. I want to thank again my friend John Kao. He's going to be speaking at the Microsoft in Education Hack of the Classroom event live on September 24th from 8 to 10 p.m. Pacific time. I'll be there. I hope to see you there. There's, of course, several great ways to reach out to TeacherCast and be a part of our broadcast each and every week. We love it when you find us on Twitter at TeacherCast. Leave us a voicemail over at TeacherCast.net slash voicemail. Email us at feedback at TeacherCast.net. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on audio and video over at TeacherCast.net slash audio and TeacherCast.net slash video. Of course, this is a big reminder that our Tech Educator podcast, our live broadcast, has moved, and we are now going to be found on two. Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. only on TeacherCast.tv. Of course, we hope that you can join us every Tuesday for the Tech Educator Podcast. On behalf of everybody here on the TeacherCast Educational Broadcasting Network, my name is Jeff Bradbury, reminding you to keep up the great work in your classrooms and continue sharing your passions with your students.